from the not-so-frozen BC Hydro rates. The ongoing health tax fallout on the panel this morning to discuss it all. Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw, CTV Vancouver's Binder Sajjan, and BC Today's Shannon Waters. Later in the show, the number of education issues on the boiler will be joined by BCTF President Glenn Hansman. Accountable to you, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Centre on Radio NL. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. It's a gray, wet morning here in Kamloops. Uh, pleasure to be joined on the phone by Binder Sajjan, Shannon Waters, and of course, Rob Shaw. Good morning, and how is everyone? Good morning. Morning, great. <laughs> Good. Morning. Uh, what's that? It's raining. Uh, let's talk about uh, this uh, not-so-frozen not so BC hydro rates. Uh, flashback to November 8th. I'll read the first line of the press release. The British Columbia government is delivering on its promise to freeze BC hydro rates. Yesterday, the BCUC uh, issuing its ruling, and that is, in fact, not the case. Uh, why don't we start with you, Shannon? Uh, where did this go wrong for the government? Um, well, somewhere near the beginning, I would say. I mean, back in November when we got the press release, the government was asked point blank about the fact that it was a request that had been placed before the BCUC, which had not yet yielded a decision. So, um, you know, their announcement that the promise had been fulfilled was maybe a bit premature, and the answer that seemed to come back was, yes, we realize we respect the process, but we fully expect to have this request granted. Um, and then we get to yesterday, and the answer is no. So, yeah, I would say early on, something something went sideways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rob, in the BCUC's decision, what stood out to you as their rationale for, for making this ruling? Well, we knew they were going to do this, I think. I mean, I remember reading the transcripts of the hearings, and the hydro was just getting raked over the coals. Uh, they, there was a bunch of areas where the government and hydro didn't have answers to the regulators' question, and one was, if you freeze rates this year, what does it do to Hydro's 10-year rate plan, which it was approved under the Liberals, but sets out these goals of, of rate increases and revenue and all this sorts of stuff? And Hydro did not know the answer to that. Another question was, there's supposed to be a review of Hydro that's going to save money to help pay for the rate freeze. And the commission said, well, where, what's the terms of that review and how much money will it save? And Hydro said, uh, I, I don't know, because government hasn't told us. And then the one of the big ones... And this is, I think, the fatal error that the government made is that instead of giving BC Hydro $140 million to cover the cost of the rate freeze, they stuck Hydro with the bill. And Hydro turned around and said, well, the only way we can afford this is if we stick it into a deferral account, which is like Hydro's credit card, where you and I and all the ratepayers pay for this, but just not this year. We pay for it in the future. And Hydro's got billions of dollars in deferral accounts. And there was a very clear section of the commission ruling where it said, look, you can you can freeze rates and we would approve it, but government needs to take less money from hydro or cover the costs, and it didn't either. So I think they messed up from the beginning. And then the other, the other part is that hydro spent months arguing in front of the commission, producing thousands of pages of documents that it needed a 3% rate hike. In fact, that wasn't even going to cover its costs. And then, of course, they had to go back and argue, well, okay, actually, we don't need it because the government told us we don't need it. So the argument was a mess. It didn't make sense. They didn't have answers. And the government knew heading into yesterday that they, they weren't going to get this, this uh, rate freeze that they wanted. <laughs> what a dog's breakfast. Uh, Bender, what do they do now? I know that Michelle Mongal has floated this idea of some help for, for low-income earners. Yeah, so I think there's a little bit of damage control that needs to be done here because this was a big plank uh, for them in terms of the election campaign affordability. So here's a government promising 
a rate freeze, telling us in November that they delivered, and now having to come back to ratepayers and saying, okay, well, actually, that didn't happen, but we're going to do something else. So what they're looking at in the long term is lifeline rates to help British Columbians in need. And they're also looking at possibly some crisis grants. Um, they were asked about where the money for this is going to come from. Still no clear answer there. Um, but I think that uh, this was something that the Premier alluded to. If you remember um, back in January, I believe it was, he talked about possibly looking at lifeline rates. And that comment actually became part of this BCUC review as well. So you have to wonder you have to wonder if, you know, maybe the premier thought at that point that it wasn't looking very good with a BCUC or if he really this is the direction they initially wanted to go in, but I think there will be a lot of people when they see their bills go up next month that will be disappointed. No, yeah, I bet. Uh, Shannon, uh, BC Hydro's uh, books are, are, you know, we know that they're a bit of a mess in there. Uh, any of this sort of impact on, on those financials? Well, I mean, it's it's starting to kind of look like BC Hydro. I mean, hopefully not on the same scale, but it's going to be something of an ICBC situation. I mean, I think the review that the government is launching, you know, they're, again, looking for cost savings, um, way to bring spending down there. But I think um, Moody's did a rating recently for BC Hydro, and it was over $20 billion in total debt. So, I mean, that's that's another huge chunk of change that the government is going to have to um, to find some way to deal with. And, you know, we still don't have those details on the review coming out, so who knows how long it's going to be before we actually have a clear picture of what's going on and where we go from here. I note that uh, Andrew Wilkinson, in responding to this, Rob, uh, was asked uh, if they left uh, the NDP a bit of a mess as far as BC Hydro's fiscal situation, to which he responded, oh, BC Hydro's on solid fiscal ground. Uh, something that I literally broke out laughing when he said it. So what was your, your take? Yeah, I mean, well, look, to, the, to chart the course of Hydro's problems, you have to go back to 1992 under the NDP when they created the dividend uh, the government takes from Hydro every year. And it created this bizarre accounting formula that Hydro has lived under every year where government tells Hydro how much money it wants from a dividend for the budget. And Hydro works backwards to push off costs in its deferral accounts to give the appearance that it is just profitable enough to give government the money it wants. It's an entire bizarre accounting sham in a way, and the Auditor General has pointed this out. And, and what's happened over the years is that Hydro has had to give government $6 billion in dividends, half of which it had to borrow. So it borrows money from the ratepayers, which is you and I, because it's a monopoly, to give to the taxpayers, which is you and I. And on both ends of that spectrum, we end up getting... Uh, you know, not a good deal. And so until a government decides to loosen the reins on hydro, allow its rates to go up by what it needs to pay for its capital costs, and stop taking money in the form of dividends, which to the Liberals' credit and the NDP's credit, they've promised to phase out eventually, hydro's stuck. And, you know, like, it's great to promise affordability on rates in an election. But governments have successively been promising that for years, and all it means is you fiddle with Hydro's finances to make it look like it's affordable. And a pyramid scheme is created that one day kind of collapses. And so there are problems. There are structural problems that will start with the NDP weaning itself off dividends and letting Hydro slump forward uh, until it kind of, you know, gets its books in order. All right. Last word to you, Bender. Sounds like a bit of a mess, like the NDP government doesn't have enough of those to clean up. 
<laughs> yeah, um, you know, there's there's been a this is a setback, I think, for the government, and I think it gives the Liberals another opportunity to show uh, this government for what how they want to characterize this government that it's a government uh, that isn't quite sure of what it's doing, that it's afraid to make decisions, and also that it's making decisions in some ways that uh, it doesn't. Uh, can't back up, that life in opposition is much different than it is in government. So uh, this is something that I think that they'll have to probably deal with um, in the short term. In the long term, they'll have to face some of those bigger questions for the Liberals as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's take a quick break here on Radio NL and Inside Politics, and we'll be right back and continue our conversation with Binder, Shannon, and Rob right here on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Binder Sajjan, Rob Shaw, and Shannon Waters. Uh, this uh, this week in the legislature, guys, is sort of a continuing topic from last week as the Liberals are trying to link George Heyman uh, to these environmental activists who are looking to disrupt or stop the Kinder Morgan pipeline, uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline construction, uh, with this so-called swarm and hive strategy. Binder, why don't we start with you? Uh, the Liberals certainly seem to think that there's some smoke here, but as far as George Heyman is concerned, is there fire? Is he linked to these people or no? Yeah, so, I mean, this is something um, when the Liberals were bringing up some of these documents, they've talked about this uh, Kinder Morgan strategy group and the link to this uh, Hive group, uh, which is a collection of uh, organizations that are trying to um, create a disruption uh, in terms of different um, different projects or different issues. And so uh, they're saying that there is a link between these two organizations and that also that George Heyman has been known to um, interact with some of these individuals as well. I don't think that this week they've uh, provided anything that's necessarily a smoking gun or shows that that absolute direct link. Um, But what they are showing is that this is a government that has a number of activist ministers, and they are suggesting that that activism continues while they're in government. So that becomes a question in terms of policy, I think, and so they're trying to raise those questions. George Heyman seemed to say, listen, there's nothing to see here, but I'm not sure that the Liberals are buying it. I think there are still some questions about how deep some of those links and interactions go, uh, given, of course, that dinner that happened on Bowen Island. Um, so uh, it, this is interesting. I think some of the, the details from this group this week were quite interesting to hear that they talk via an app that where the messages disappear, that they're not supposed to plan anything hmm. uh, by email or text. And so... That was kind of interesting to look into, um, but uh, I'm not sure exactly how 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 hurt George Heyman was by this whole thing. Yeah, Shannon, uh, why don't we go to you? Uh, I mean, is Heyman going to take a bruising on this, or uh, do you think he's going to manage to steer clear? Um, well, he certainly seems to be assured that he is in the right. I mean, when he was being questioned by um, Liberal MLA Peter Millibar um, this week, he basically said, why don't you say that to me outside of the chamber um, when Millibar was sort of implying that Heyman had been colluding with these activists 
it's in the shadows. Of course, taking it out of the chamber, you can face um, slander charges for saying some of the things that get said during question period. So Heyman, you know, seems to think he's on solid ground. He said repeatedly, you know, I meet with with um, groups who are opposed to these projects. I meet with groups who are in favor of these projects. He claims to have met with twice as many groups uh, who are, you know, involved with industry and resource development and want to see, um, say, like the Trans Mountain Pipeline get built. Um, he says it's part of the job as minister and that he's only doing his job. So, so far he's he's sticking to his guns and saying that he's in the right. And I agree with Bender. I don't think the liberals have come up with a smoking gun just yet. All right, uh, Rob, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, they've wounded George Heyman, but they're not going to bring him down on something like this. I mean, it looks bad to go have dinner with groups who have a vested interest in the regulatory announcement you're about to make the next day, and then for them to be putting in press releases in support of your announcement within seconds or minutes of you making it. Um, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out that, you know, these groups are in the loop on what government's doing. And... George Heyman was the executive director of the Sierra Club, you know, before he, he was uh, uh, in politics. So what the Liberals have become, you know, uh, a movement. I think we're losing a bit here, Rob. I think you're cutting in and out there. Maybe we'll get you to move to a better location. Uh, hopefully you're still on the line. Uh, Bitter, why don't we go back to you on the, on this thing? I mean, it, uh, obviously the Liberals are trying to hang, if it's not reality, uh, they're trying to at least hang the perception on Mr. Heyman on this thing. Yeah, exactly. And I and I think just picking up on what Rob was saying there, it's that whole perception piece of that is an issue here. Um, and it raises a bunch of questions, I think more so in terms of the dinner on Bowen Island than in terms of this uh, the new allegations this week about the the high proposal and the Kinder Strategy Group, and those are serious questions. Um, how how close is that relationship? How cozy is uh, this minister to uh, activists within the community and what kind of information is being shared. I think those are serious questions and ones that I think will continue to dog, if not George Heyman, at least other ministers within this government for sure. All right. Uh, I understand we got Rob back. Uh, Rob, uh, I want to switch this up a little bit. It's sort of a similar vein, but you did a pretty good story on another minister who's, who's certainly linked to activism in Lana Popham uh, and her letter to a fish farm that certainly landed her in a, in a bit of a mess. Uh, you kind of taken hundreds of emails and kind of parsed how that whole situation happened. Uh, maybe just run it through us, us for our listeners. Uh, how did that whole thing transpire? Yeah, well, remember, this was a letter that uh, Minister Popham sent to a fish farm company called Marine Harvest uh, in November of last year, and it was widely construed as a threat to the, the company because it basically said, we're not super happy that you restocked your open-pen salmon uh, farm. Uh, you're the subject of First Nations protests, and uh, by the way, the government controls your tenure, and your tenure is up for renewal soon, dot, dot, dot. And there's sort of this not-so-veiled threat to the company that, uh, you know, your fate is in our hands and we're not happy. And so, uh, you know, FOI'd how the letter got made. And it was interesting because at the time we criticized Lana Popham, again, to go back to the George Heyman thing, this idea that there are activist ministers in government and that she, who I mean, she's known to oppose uh, fish farms. And, um, you know, it was an idea of, well, maybe she went off and freelanced this. And it, it shows, the record shows that certainly Lana Popham uh, came up with this idea 
idea, and that she tried at first to get the federal government, the federal fisheries minister, to intervene and stop the restocking of the fish farm. But once she set in motion the letter, it was approved at the highest levels of government. The premier's chief of staff, the premier's deputy minister, three cabinet ministers, three deputies, they knew it was going to be perceived as a threat, and they talked about trying to tone the language down. But it wasn't just Minister Popham stumbling out uh, and, and getting caught in something, much like, you know, it's not just Minister Heyman out there stumbling around. I think this is, it shows the, that, you know, the government is fully aware of what these ministers are doing, and, and they're helping them do it. So it's an interesting glimpse into this. I mean, what happens with fish farms is still up in the air. The government had to take basically this file away from Popham and launch an independent review into fish farm science, and the premier had to backtrack on a whole bunch of different parts of the letter. So it was a mess, but it wasn't Minister Popham's total mess on her own. And it gives an insight into how these ministers aren't, they're not as freelancing and as activist as we think they are. They're kind of endorsed by the upper levels of government. Uh, almost, Shannon, it almost sounds like a bit of a, of a joke there. How many government staffers does it take to write a letter? Or? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the problem thing is, I, I expected it to come back. I expected we hadn't heard the last of it. it this took up a lot of uh, a lot of time in question period. And outside of question period, as Rob said, you know, they launched a, a review into science being done around the issue um, after Popham was questioned. But um, you do kind of wonder what it's like for staffers to be working with, say, a minister like Popham, who does have sort of some issues near and dear to her heart that she's she's been outspoken about. Um, you know, as Rob said, it does look like there there's support for her from higher levels of government, but you do kind of maybe wonder about uh, what it was like for the staffers to see her maybe get the bit between her teeth a little bit on this issue and uh, knowing that it might not go so well when that letter was sent. Uh, finishing up with you, Binder, on this topic, I know Don Wright was called in to do a review. My understanding is it's done. Any idea when we might see this thing or, or what it contains? Well, yeah, government's got the review, but they're looking to put out a final version, and uh, they will be sharing that uh, in the coming weeks. It's hard to know exactly when that's going to come out. I, I don't have that date with me, but um, I think uh, we'll be looking at a bigger issue here. This is something that uh, the agriculture minister also has a council reviewing uh, recommendations in terms of what should be done in terms of uh, aquaculture in BC. So I think we're going to see a lot more on this issue in the coming weeks, and it'll be interesting to see if uh, Lana Popham is under fire still uh, after that after that information comes out. Yeah, and or if, conversely, if the Premier has to again uh, stand up and shield her, as he did previously. Uh, why don't we take a bit of a break here, uh, get caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour, and we'll rejoin our conversation with Binder, Rob, and Shannon on Inside Politics and Radio NL after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. 
Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Bender Sajjan, Shannon Waters, and Rob Shaw. Uh, Rob, why don't we start with you uh, this go-around. We're talking about the health payroll tax, uh, one that seemingly has uh, some pretty serious legs for the opposition liberals as we get more and more headlines uh, from various sectors throughout the province as they busy, you know, crunch the numbers and determine this thing's going to cost them X amount of dollars, be it city hall, school districts, businesses, uh, whatever. Is there any flexibility, do you think, that the government will be forced to make some changes on this thing? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, the varied examples that they're bringing up. You know, there's farms and uh, school boards and all sorts of uh, of different impacts of the, the health tax. And we heard it during the budget lockup where the business groups and small business groups came up to us and said, look, a $500,000 payroll uh, for a business can be five to seven employees. We're not talking mega corporations here. And, and those are the ones starting at uh, 500000 and moving up that start getting hit with the the health tax, and it, in particular, it's going to be bad for the ones that aren't paying currently uh, for someone, their employees' MSP premiums, and now are going to get hit with this tax, so it's an additional cost to them. Uh, there is a larger confusion, I think, about the impact of the NDP's budget taxes, the speculation tax um, is causing all sorts of questions. Um, you know, there's the concerns that charities and nonprofits and other groups are going to be inadvertently affected by the MSP tax, the speculation tax, the the tax on uh, properties worth more than three million, the school tax. I mean, it's there's a lot of questions being shot at the NDP right now on the specific impact of those taxes on specific groups and specific companies. And you hear a little bit of, of stuff from John Horgan saying, well, we're going to try and make certain groups whole. And then you hear Finance Minister Carol James say, well, well, you know, some of this is is baked in, and you wonder if the NDP really knows um, how bad some of the inadvertent consequences of these taxes could be, and, and if behind the scenes they're working on figuring out a way to prevent some really negative stories coming out of these in, in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Bender, they've definitely, you know, I've heard from Carol James and Rob Fleming and even from the Premier himself sort of hinting, well, we have some time, we're going to keep an eye on it, uh, we can make some adjustments, you know, language like that. Do you think that they're going to have to make any changes? Well, I think uh, the Liberals are coming out. Uh, Wilkinson yesterday called the, the, the rollout of this a blunder. Um, and it sounds like they're going to continue going down this path, hammering the government with more and more examples. Uh, yes, Carol James has said, listen, this doesn't go into effect for another year. We're going to continue to have conversations. Uh, when the question is raised in question period, she you know, usually comes back talking about um, businesses who are going to get a break. Um, I think businesses, once they start to realize what this impact is going to be on them, are probably going to tire of those answers pretty quick and are going to be looking for some sort of relief. And remember, this is a tax that's based on your payroll, as Rob pointed out. So as 500000 once you hit that mark, you're going to start paying the tax. But that doesn't necessarily reflect your profit. And what Wilkinson is saying is that he's had businesses from and organizations, employers, coming to him saying, listen, there's only so much money. We have to do something here, and we don't know what we're going to do. And I think uh, at some point the NDP is going to have to acknowledge that there might be an issue, and uh, we'll see if they do something. Uh, Shannon, the thing that really strikes out at me is, uh, I mean, as they phase down the MSP, well, that's all fine and dandy, uh, but then you're going to have that one year next year where there's that double dip where they pay both the MSP and this new health payroll tax, and then the year after that, the landscape sort of sorts itself uh, out a little bit. Uh, that one year seems a little bit egregious. Yeah, 
It definitely isn't going, like, it's not popular, right? I mean, nobody wants to be sort of faced with uh, paying this taxes to fund a specific program from sort of two separate sides. Now, it was pointed out this week that um, not a huge amount of employers who are likely to have to pay the new health tax are actually paying for their um, for MSP premiums. So I don't know how many businesses are actually going to be affected by the double hit, but it doesn't look good for the NDP government. I mean, the Liberals all are already going back to the whole, here we are with the tax and spend NDP, the way that they're funding this budget of theirs with all of these big promises, which they haven't actually delivered on, is on the backs of employers and other British Columbians who are being hit with the tax. So the optics on it certainly aren't good. And honestly, the government doesn't seem to be very organized about how these, what the effect of these taxes are going to be, and also what they're trying to achieve with them. It kind of seems like they've just brought them in, are planning to throw them at the wall and see if they stick. Yeah. Um, you know, not a great look. Yeah, no, I would agree with that, especially on, as Rob mentioned, the speculation tax, which has that weird areas it applies and areas it doesn't, which means there's going to be some people who pay a lot and some people who don't who have the same situation, which is odd. Uh, real quick, as we're getting near the end here, uh, proportional representation, the public input session wrapped up uh, yesterday. I note in the release, the province hailed uh, basically are really calling sort of a record amount of input, uh, something like, you know, 180,000 website hits, 88,000 uh, questionnaires filled out. Uh, but Rob, I note there's 3.1 million registered voters voters in this province, so those numbers don't exactly seem glowing to me. No, I mean, it's uh, it's not not a surprise, I guess, that people weren't motivated to go in and provide public input on a complicated subject like proportional representation. But this is, again, this is one of the real problems with the way the NDP have proceeded on this file is they've set up rules that are already baked in about a 50% plus one majority to pass this referendum, and those aren't up for debate. And so you're kind of just doing public uh, consultation as window dressing around different issues. The core concerns about rural British Columbia getting outvoted by Metro Vancouver aren't up for public consultation. So what would, And the public consultation was not exactly an unbiased uh, bit of question asking. There were some weird questions there. So, uh, look, there's not a lot of people participating. That will be the number one concern going into the vote, is if you don't have a lot of people, is that enough mandate to change the electoral system, especially if most of them are from Metro Vancouver and the impact is felt across the province. So it's not a good start to what is already a pretty troubling process. Uh, Bender, 88,000 questionnaires filled out. Those ideally, according to Mr. Eby, are going to uh, set the you know suggestions for the guidelines, even the question on the ballot, the rules, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Is it worrisome that that few amount of, of, of people who are filled out questionnaires could sort of set a pattern for this thing? Yeah, I think so, um, and that's something that the Liberals definitely have been bringing up as well. Now, the problem is is that there's a lot of confusion, I think. So even when there was literature going out telling people that they could provide input on this website, people were getting confused and saying, oh, is this when I'm supposed to vote? There's a lot of confusion about what's going on, and I think in to, clear, to make sure that you're getting enough people to actually participate, you need to clear up some of that confusion. You need to get really clear on what the question is and what you're asking of people to make sure that you actually can then say that you have a mandate to make the changes that you are proposing. And Shannon, does this forecast at all in your mind the, the potential for a pretty low turnout when we hit the referendum this fall? I hate to say it, but I think it probably does. I mean, um, electoral reform is 
is a complicated issue. And I think while a public consultation is, you know, generally and certainly in theory a good idea, trying to get people to sort of tease apart what the different options are, what they will represent, how they will function, um, is just more than a lot of people are interested in doing. I mean, we don't know exactly what the ballot questions are going to be at this point in time. We don't know how many there are going to be at this point in time. We don't know what systems are going to be considered. Um, and I think that's a lot for for people to kind of try and get a handle on. Um, you know, easier to say, like, in a way, these are the options. This is what we're looking at. What do you think? Um, unfortunately, I don't know. I don't know how many people actually feel that this is it, this is something important that they want to be a part of, and how many of them will you know be bothered to fill out that ballot in November? Yeah, yeah it's concerning. Uh, real quick before we head out, uh, state funeral for Dave Barrett, former premier of this province, goes down in Victoria tomorrow. Uh, just a real quick thought from the three of you and his uh, and his legacy. I'll start off a little bit. I'm just uh, he was obviously a little bit before my time, but uh, I'm struck by the sheer amount of stuff he got done and the institutions around us and on all sorts of levels that have endured today in just three short years in government. Uh, Rob? Yeah, no, I mean, that's been well documented, the, the, the things that he accomplished. But, you know, it's interesting. John Horgan gave a great tribute to him. I don't think that Dave Barrett is the premier that John Horgan wants to emulate. Uh, you know, he was a three-year premier between two social credit dynasties. It was a brief flirtation with the NDP. To go back to our discussions about activist um, ministers, I mean, that was a criticism of the of the Barrett government. It was an activist uh, government, and, and voters rejected He lost his seat in 1975 as premier. So, you know, I don't think that's where John Horgan wants to go, that good time, not a long time. It, it, they want to accomplish what the Barrett government did and have that legacy, but not get thrown out of office in three years because people think they were an activist government. So there's lessons to be learned from his incredible accomplishments as well. Bender on Barrett's legacy? Yeah, so before my time as well, so I actually consulted uh, my expert, my dad, on what he thought. He was here um, when with Dave Barrett, and he says he remembers him for ICBC, Farmer Care. Of course, a list of different things goes on and on, but that's what stood out for him. And he said that he really appreciated, as a newcomer to this country, uh, Dave Barrett speaking out for minority rights, and said that he was really good for the labor movement as well, so... That was my dad's perspective. There we go. Uh, finishing up with you, Shannon. Well, Barrett, again, sort of similar to Binder, Barrett's before my time, but it's one of those names, if you you know pay sort of any attention to the history of BC politics, that comes up. And, you know, even if you weren't around when he was in government, you know who Dave Barrett is. I, as well, kind of thought that Horgan did a really touching and eloquent tribute, although I had to laugh. Horgan really likes to seem to talk about his tempestuous youth, so as part of the tribute, he thanked Dave Barrett for banning corporal punishment in schools, basically implying that he would have had that applied to him uh, when he was a high school student, yeah. which made me chuckle. <laughs> All right, uh, guys, appreciate it. Thank you so much, uh, Rob, Binder, and Shannon. Thank you. There we go. Uh, we'll talk to them again on the uh, next edition of Inside Politics. Uh, we'll take a quick break here. Oh, and by the way, if you're curious, Dave Barrett's uh, state funeral tomorrow, University of Victoria, uh, gets going at 10 o'clock in the morning. A quick break in Radio NL, BCTF President Glenn Hansman on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. 
keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Glenn Hansman. Glenn, how are you? Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me. Good. I understand, uh, like me, you were battling through a sickness. I'm doing my sort of sultry voice today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my regular one. Thank you very much. All right. Sultry voice, Glenn, it is. Uh, Glenn, uh, I'm sure you're aware of this new health payroll tax. Uh, I'm, I remember doing stories with you in the past about advocating to get the MSP costs off of school districts. Uh, on one hand, good news, that is going away. Uh, on the other hand, bad news, you're getting a new payroll tax, and we're getting now, as the districts crunch the numbers and work the calculators, some indication of the cost of this thing here in Kamloops. Uh, they anticipate by 2021 it's going to wipe out every single dollar of the MSP savings and add another $250,000 of costs. Bigger school districts, obviously, with huge, uh, with much more sort of a, of a cost impact. So, uh, for the BCATF side of things, uh, any concerns here on, on this unexpected cost? Well, we're hearing similar numbers from other districts too. So it's uh, you know, Kamloops district isn't off on its own, sort of making those calculations. What's going to be important is that the the province increase the grant to school districts so it's covered. This can't be another downloaded cost. I know you know the NDP was very critical of the Liberals when uh, the Liberal government continued to put the squeeze on school districts by downloading costs. And so as long as the the operating grants to school districts sort of match um, what the um, the cost will be for this new payroll tax, then things should be good. And so I'm, you know, I understand from um, Minister Fleming and comments that they've made in the ledge that you know all those things are being looked at. It would just be nice to know sooner rather than later so that school districts have some certainty because you know we all know that school districts around BC had to deal with a lot of uncertainty, unpredictable funding, and lots of sudden changes under the previous government. We need some stability. We need increased funding and stability. On the on the on as far as the certainty goes, Glenn, on the budgeting side of things, uh, how soon do you need the government to come down with? Okay, uh, we've determined the cost. Uh, this is what we're going to do to help you out. If in fact they're going to help you out, we don't know if they will, uh, because as I understand it, the budgeting process uh, is something that needs to be addressed fairly quickly for school districts. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it'd be good to know within the next couple of weeks, if at all possible, because the school districts are operating on budgets that match with the school year, whereas the province has a different fiscal year. And so the one doesn't quite overlap with the other. And so school districts need to know now because they would be incurring costs sometime within the next school year um, if it isn't rectified. And so I imagine superintendents and secretary treasurers around the province are, are going to be asking for that information. ASAP, because then staffing decisions flow from that. So, you know, if you're not getting the money, then that has an implication on what frontline services you're able to provide to children and youth that are in our K-12 schools. Well, what happens if you don't get that certainty, you don't get that information in time, and what does that mean? Well, it means that they may, school districts may need to proceed with, with cuts, and I don't think that's what this new government intends. Um, um, especially since around Labor Day, you know, everyone was talking about the era of underfunding being over. And, you know, let's be clear, I mean, getting rid of the MSP, the MSP is a unfair tax because it is a flat rate for everyone, regardless of your ability to pay. So this new model is way better. It's what the other provinces do. But we have this sort of weird thing when it's a public service, not just school districts, but hospitals and all that, all those other things too, where government is sort of taxing itself, right? And so we just have to make sure that the dollars match. If you know the provincial government is creating a new financial obligation for a school district, then that dollar amount needs to be covered by the province and not sort of create another funding shortfall. 
Now, I mean, we just saw the budget tabled uh, last week. Um, if I have sort of, I mean, we we're trying to determine the impact on this, and we don't have finite numbers, but my guess here is uh, that all the school districts in, they would have to increase the grants by somewhere in the neighborhood of like millions of dollars in order to counteract those costs. Do you think that's even possible on a financial, on a financial front? Oh, I think so. I mean, there were there were contingency funds within there, and the Minister of Finance was clear that everything was sort of being looked at. I just I wasn't getting the sense, though, that they had yet wrapped their heads around the fact that school districts have to sort of plan ahead and that the year is different. And so, you know, maybe there was sort of a sense that this can get resolved in sort of the uh, the funding review that the province has formally announced for K to twelve. But I would suggest, and I'm. I'm confident that others are too, including school boards, that this particular piece needs to be addressed over the next couple of weeks, not waiting for a panel or some external review of how the education system is funded. All right. Uh, $2 billion in that budget, Glenn, to address capital needs, obviously good news, but uh, I would suspect that the sheer desire for, or the sheer sort of uh, need capital on the capital front in school districts is probably going to uh, surmount that line item. Uh, I've been told that even if they address getting kids out of portables in, say, Surrey alone, it's getting up a fair chunk of that $2 billion. So uh, do you think it's going to be a case of a lot of school districts who are thinking, okay, there's finally some light at the end of the tunnel, we're going to get our capital needs addressed, i.e. like here in Kamloops, uh, that they're in fact going to face a year or two of disappointment before the province is able to get around to them? Well, I mean, not every school can be built all at once either. The $2 billion is pretty ambitious. It's certainly more ambitious than what we saw from the previous government. So, I mean, I'm mindful that Gordon Campbell, when he was premier, promised to have all seismically unsafe schools uh, upgraded before 2020. And clearly that's not going to happen. Um, you know, I, I'm as impatient as everybody else is. There's no, you know, it's not justifiable to have kids in seismically unsafe schools, but um, as well in growing areas uh, or just buildings that need to be replaced, period, just because they're old and dilapidated, um, you know, the new construction can't come too soon. But $2 billion over a three-year period of time is, is way more than what was there before. It'll be making sure that uh, all the schools get built within that window of time and that there's commitments for year four and year five to try to get the rest of this done. You know, Surrey isn't the only place where it's a problem. Chilliwack, for sure. Um, there's thousands of kids supportables there. The whole capital region south of Vancouver Island, um, tight, tight space issues there too. But you know, Kamloops and other uh, other parts of the Okanagan, where you know maybe facility a boiler hasn't been replaced, or there needs to be an extension on a school, or a school needs to be reopened and have some repairs done to it. All that costs money, and so uh, uh, hopefully the conversations will continue on that. The good news is, is that uh, the uh, Deputy Minister uh, has been having ongoing conversations with all the education partners, including superintendents, the trustees, and uh, secretary-treasurers around how to perhaps change a lot of the rules around uh, school construction, how school districts save money on that, the cost-sharing arrangement. So hopefully some more clarity around that will come to, because it's been a long time since any of that was looked at in a meaningful way. Uh, I've got an MLA who's texting me as we speak right now that they estimate $70 million dollars to overset uh, the value of the payroll health tax. Does that number seem about right to you? That, that seems about right. I mean, I don't have the exact number, but just sort of uh, scaling up from what the uh, board chair in Vancouver was estimating. And so the money's going to need to come from the province. It's uh, it's not something that, you know, after 16 years of the BC Liberals, school districts were pretty, pretty tight on the staffing and uh, had no fat to trim whatsoever and really didn't before either. So it's not as if School districts are able to absorb that. 
without having a direct impact on the services that do the tap. All right, Glenn, thanks so much, man. I appreciate the time, and especially you doing it while you're sick. Yeah, take care. PCTF President Glenn Hansman, that's it for today's Inside Politics. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next Friday. Local. First. CHNL. AM 610 in Kamloops. RadioNL.com. The Valley's first choice for local news.